This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. Here at Roll Call, we have long chronicled the path to Election Day by reporting on the most vulnerable incumbents, the people we think have the best chance of not being back, even though they want to be back in Congress. It's an evolving cast, and with a roughly a month and a half to go until Election Day, we're going to take measure here on political theater with our politics team. And that team is politics editor Herb Jackson. Hello, Herb. Good morning. Senior reporter Kate Ackley. Good morning, Kate. Hello. Or good evening, whenever anybody's listening to this. <laughs> and staff writer Mary Ellen McIntyre. Howdy, Mel. Hi, everyone. <laughs> All right. So, Kate and and Mel, let's start with those most vulnerables. We uh, we revise this, you know, sort of really at the beginning of each new Congress. Uh, politics never sleeps, right? We're we're always keeping track of who you know who has the toughest road to a reelection. Let's start with the House. Uh, who are the new additions to the House list, and what do those additions show about this environment that we're in, which tends to sort of change around now when we're finally done with primaries? So there are a lot of new additions on this list. The last time we did this was sort of at the start of primary season, and the prior list included several members who lost their primary. So we got to you know kind of look at all these races and consider a lot of candidates for this list. Um, Some of the members included on this list are Democrats who are sort of facing the tough political headwinds of running in, you know, tight districts in a midterm election where their party is in control in Washington, which historically um, is difficult for those members. They include um, Elaine Luria in Virginia's second district and Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. I'm blanking on the district there, Um, Michigan 7th District. Um, But I think, you know, one of the big differences is that last spring when we lasted this, um, a lot of most of the Republicans on the list um, were vulnerable because they were vulnerable in primaries. And in this list, we have four Republicans who are running in close races who weren't previously on the list. And it really kind of shows the tightening political environment from the last time we did this, Um, you know, having Republicans who are running in Biden districts who are going to face, you know, pretty tough paths to re-election this fall. Right. I mean, just some of the more notable people who have, are not on the list now, as you, as you said, they're, they're people who have lost. Uh, Liz Cheney uh, was was topping this this your most vulnerable list, your last most vulnerable list, uh, because we knew that she had a very difficult primary ahead of her in Wyoming, uh, and she lost. So she's she's no longer vulnerable. She's she's gone uh, for for the most part for the next Congress. Kate, were there any surprises uh, with, with with some of the people? who maybe at the beginning of the year you all didn't think would be vulnerable, but all of a sudden are? Well, I think there was a period in this election cycle where we thought Republicans were maybe better off than they are right now. As Mel mentioned, the race sort of tightened. Um, We've seen with the rise of abortion as an issue that that has maybe helped Democrats and maybe hurt some Republicans in these swing districts. Um, So we've you know, it's it's hard to say 
because it's likely that things would have tightened a bit anyway. But, um, you know, we we do believe that some Republicans, um, some House Republicans are, are truly vulnerable this cycle, in part because of redistricting. So we also the, the whole redistricting process was delayed uh, because of the 20, the 2020 census was delayed. So there were all these ripple effects. Um, so I think we see a few Republicans that maybe have shown electoral strength in the past. Um, you know, we've seen them come back on the list. You know, uh, there are a couple of good examples. Number three on our current House list is David Valadeo, who's running for re-election in California's second district. Um, he actually won his seat back in 2020 after losing it in the, the blue wave of 2018. Um, he has a, a, a more challenging race this cycle in part because he has a he's running against a candidate that Democrats believe is quite strong. Uh, that's a Democrat named Rudy Salas, who's a state legislature there in California. So uh, this is this is a, a toss up race uh, that, you know, you'd Valadeo won in 2020. You'd think maybe he was strong, but redistricting and also he has a tougher opponent. Um, it gives kind of a good example. Another Another Republican that is sort of has been on our list, um, you know, for uh, s multiple cycles is Steve Shabbat in uh, Ohio's first district. Again, this is somebody who's a veteran of winning tough races, but redistricting made this uh, th this race very hard for him. Um, it went from, you know, being uh, you know, uh, maybe a swing district, if you will. But now uh, this is a district that uh, President Joe Biden won by nine points in 2020. So you can get a sense for this is a more Democratic leaning district. So that's something that Republicans were maybe less worried about until things sort of tightened, the generic ballot, if you will, tightened over the summer with the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, putting abortion rights um, you know, in voters' minds in a way that it competes a bit with the the themes that Republicans are running on, which is, of course, inflation and uh, crime to some extent, depending on the district. And and I'm glad you mentioned Shabbat because his, um, you know, his, his district in the Cincinnati area was always sort of drawn a little bit to his advantage because they were the, the the people drawing the lines in Ohio were able to sort of crack open the district and 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 sort of pad it on the suburbs with more Republican voters. But this is a much more, you know, as you said, Democratic uh, district. I mean, redistricting always throws a monkey wrench uh, in in these uh, in these midterm elections because it, uh, it will it, in the event that they are midterm elections, sometimes they fall during a presidential cycle, but they can really uh, wreak some havoc <laughs> uh, in, yeah. in, you know, in just where people are going to run and, and what's going to happen. And it, also, you mentioned abortion. I mean, look, we almost have these countervailing uh, forces that, you know, some people are, are very motivated uh, by by abortion rights. The Dobbs decision of the Supreme Court that overturned Roe versus Wade has really brought a lot of people, uh, particularly women, uh, you know, to to the to the polls uh, that we've seen, uh, and then, but then the you know the economy is still in this very weird place where it's very you know it's very expensive to travel to you know you know food is expensive mortgage you know prices are going up. It just seems like it's almost a crapshoot about which is the most important issue district by district. 
Yeah, I think you're really seeing that in terms of like how different candidates are messaging and coming out with ads. I think, you know, anyone watching TV right now is if they're living in a swing district is probably just getting nonstop political ads. Um, And you're really seeing, you know, a lot of Democratic ads focused on issues like abortion. That's a really big issue for them. They're really seeming to hone in on that in a lot of these races. But on the Republican side, they seem to be focusing a lot more on the economy, inflation, affordability, and also crime. That's becoming a greater focus of their ads, too. So you're really sort of seeing both sides focusing on what they think is going to be the issue that is best for them. And I'm not going to say completely ignoring the other issues because you are seeing some messaging, but in their paid advertising, you know, that's really the approach that both sides are taking. And before we start talking about the the Senate, there, there's a few folks who didn't make the list. I mean, we, we always sort of crunch it to 10 because, you know, that's just what you do, right? It's a top 10 list. You know, David, that, this made David Letterman famous, right? <laughs> well, among <laughs> other things, stupid Petrix also. But Mel, there are a couple couple of folks, uh, a couple of Democrats on that did not make the list, but could have, uh, depending on circumstances. Why don't you talk about them? Again, these are a couple of, of uh, members who typically f- uh, have tough races. Yeah, I think one of them is um, Matt Cartwright in Pennsylvania. He's, you know, someone who has run in tough districts before. He's won um, in his district where in cycles when Trump has won his district. So, you know, he's like some of those Republicans that we mentioned. You know, he's someone who's used to these tough races. But, you know, this year he is facing a rematch with his 2020 opponent, Jim Bogdett. And, you know, you've sort of seen both of them putting out polls in the last couple of days that show they're up, they're going to win the race. And I think this is, you know, one of those seats that is going to be really tight. And Matt Carwright is someone who has a good, um, really good, strong presence in his district. That's something that folks on both sides of the aisle talk about. He's well known in the district. They like him. Um, And it's really sort of a question of, is that going to be enough to get him over the edge? Um, in this cycle that, you know, might favor Republicans this year. And I also want to add to, before we get to the next, uh, the next person is that this is going to be one of those gut checks for the Democrats because this also Cartwright's district just happens to be Joe Biden's hometown. <laughs> yeah. Great point. Great point. Um, that I'm sure it's one that Biden will be watching a little bit more closely um, in yeah. November. Yeah. Hear a lot one, about Scranton. <laughs> I'm sure. And the only other thing I'll say before we go on to the next one is I think that the Senate and governor's races in Pennsylvania, you know, that's a district where, you know, we talked a lot about what that could be. Um, John Fetterman appears to be leading in the Senate race right now. And, you know, there is a question of does that then help other Democrats down ballot in Pennsylvania um, with those races? So we will see what happens there. And another candidate who actually fell off the list from the last time we did this was Jared Golden in Maine. Um, he's another Democrat running in a Trump district, is used to being in these tight battles, um, seems to be really well liked in his district. He's a bit newer to Congress. He was first elected in 2018. Um, he's facing a rematch with former Congressman Bruce Poliquin. Um, and I think we'll see, but we felt like from all of our conversations and what we've been seeing in this race is that he sort of seems a bit safer than he did earlier in this year and that there were some other people who were a little bit in tougher positions at this point about seven weeks out. So we'll see what happens there. Um, In Maine, one thing to note is that they have ranked choice voting. Um, So that always adds, you know, a wrinkle to how we're considering this as well. That was how he first got elected to Congress in 2018. Although, you know, Republicans sort of say, 
Mainers have been doing ranked choice voting for a few cycles now. They know what they're doing, so they feel a bit more confident um, this cycle than they did in past years. And Kate, uh, we have a, a special category for uh, because it would just be too easy to put these folks on the most vulnerable list because we know that's, that one of them is not coming back. These are incumbent versus incumbent races. In redistricting cycles, they they tend to be, uh, you know, we, we've tended to see more maybe uh, this in the primaries, uh, but you know, the, here there are some general elections that feature them also. Uh, and again, uh, one of my favorite turns of phrase uh, in in the newsroom comes to us from our old friend Paul Singer, uh, who described these races as hot member on member action. Yeah, we had a bunch of those this year in the primaries because of redistricting where people lost a a district and they had to run um, against a fellow incumbent. So we kind of made a separate category for those because we could have had a whole list of them. And we decided to stick with that, keeping people in member versus member hot, member versus member races (laughs) off of our main list. But if we were to if if we were to put them on really our most vulnerable incumbent is a Democrat in Florida, Congressman Al Lawson, who basically lost his district. Uh, You know, the Republicans who controlled uh, the redistricting process there in Florida essentially parceled his district out. He did not opt to retire, which is what many, many other members facing a similar situation. That's what, you know, they just decided they weren't coming back. They decided to retire. Um, So he is truly... Uh, he is truly, truly vulnerable. He faces uh, a fellow incumbent, Congressman Neil Dunn. Um, we have another race in Texas, a very newly elected Congresswoman, Myra Flores, who won a special election. Um, she is running against a fellow incumbent, Vicente Gonzalez, in the 34th district. Um, and she is not favored to win. It, I think it, depending on who you talk to, that does seem like it's a competitive race, whereas that Florida that Florida race is not viewed as competitive by either side. But her race uh, against uh, Congressman Gonzalez is considered competitive. But this this is like a, a, a Biden won that district uh, by about 15, 16 points in um, 2020. So you get a sense for that there's a lot more Democrats in that district than Republicans, but it is it is a race that, uh, you know, outside groups are spending on. And before we get into the Senate, Senate folks, I mean, one, one thing to just note, too, is that uh, we're open seats that are more, you know, we don't count those in the most vulnerable incumbents list because there are no incumbents. Uh, but, you know, whether I mean, w- when you look at the list that, that you all have compiled, you know, Rhode Island two, Colorado eight, Oregon five and six, North Carolina 13, Pennsylvania 17, Illinois 17. It, this is why Republicans feel good <laughs> about their chances is because these are, you know, f- for the most part, these are all Democratic seats. Uh, it's a lot easier to win sometimes, especially if the in, in a cycle that favors you like it does the Republicans. So, you know, when you're when you have the margins in the House that they have right now with only five seats separating the two parties, uh, you know, it, it's they're just more paths to to the majority for the Republicans uh, that, than there are necessarily for the for the Dems. All right. Let's talk about the Senate. The Senate list uh, is was a little more stable. And again, we're not talking uh, about open seats. I mean, you, uh, Mel, you mentioned the, the, the Fetterman, Dr. Oz uh, Senate race. That's not really uh Factored into the most vulnerable because it's an open seat, and uh, but but let let's let's talk about the, um, the the dynamic that really hasn't changed a whole lot. We've got several tight races at the top, and we had to kind of we had to stretch a little bit to get 
to 10. Uh, we, we had to imagine that things would be worse for some of the incumbents necessarily uh, to, to get to 10. But let's let's talk about the dynamics here, uh, who's on the list, where and where we were uh, a few months ago and where we are now. Yeah. Who's our top, who's our top in- most vulnerable incumbent? Our top most vulnerable incumbent um, in the Senate is Nevada Senator Catherine Cortez Masto. Um, She was also ranked our most vulnerable senator earlier this year, the last time we did this. Um, The top three, um, I'll just kind of tick through them. After her, we had Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, a Republican, and then Raphael Warnock from Georgia, a a Democrat. Those three, I think, you know, are all pretty vulnerable. We had a pretty tough time. Whereas in the Senate race, House race, it was like way too many people that we could have put in the top 10. Like you said, in the Senate, not that issue, but the ordering of them was, you know, really difficult. Um, These are, you know, three of the most vulnerable incumbents for various reasons. But, you know, I'll put Cortez Masto and um, Warnock together just in the sense of these are states where some of the fundamentals are pretty hard. Um, especially Georgia. And then, you know, you have just more Republicans historically. It's a historically more Republican state. And then in Nevada, you have, you know, a really transient population, a lot of new voters coming in and a lot of service industry workers who, you know, were really affected by the pandemic and sort of all that that did on jobs. So for those reasons, you have Republicans, you know, feeling good about these races, feeling like these are, you know, seats that they can flip, but they will all say, you know, they're going to be a challenge. In Nevada, especially, this is one race where you do see um, Catherine Cortez Masto really focusing on abortion. Um, In Nevada, there are, you know, strong abortion state laws. um, So it's not necessarily, you know, the same risk as some of the other states that you have of, you know, abortion not becoming accessible um, in the state as you have in other places. But she is really focusing on this and sort of some of the risks to would there be, you know, a vote for a nationwide ban at a certain point um, if Republicans took the Senate. I'd note too that the 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 dynamics in these three races too with the with their the opponents the quality of opponent is you know is is, is interesting. So in, in Nevada, as you said, uh, Catherine Cortez Masto is is her opponent is Adam Laxalt, who is a statewide office holder, you know, uh, and and has has a sort of a political brand, you know, name. Uh, and then you know in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson's running against Mandela Barnes, who's the lieutenant governor, another statewide office holder. So there's some name recognition there. Also, and then in Georgia. Herschel Walker, not a political, uh, politically experienced uh, candidate, but certainly somebody who uh, the broader culture has known. I mean, he was a, you know, he won the Heisman Trophy as a, or I think he won the Heisman Trophy uh, at the University of Georgia as a running back. You know, he was in the NFL. He's, people know who Herschel Walker is uh, through various reasons uh, that don't have anything to do with politics. Uh, and then, you know, some of the other races that we were seeing too are, are, are these are again, going to be tight. I mean, Mark Kelly has, you know, like he, he seems to be sort of like in this, in this area that a lot of them, a lot of the incumbents are at, which is about like 45 to 48%. <laughs> they're, they seem to be polling at, uh, and he has this uh, tough race against Blake Masters, but Blake Masters also has no money apparently. Right. And I think, you know, Arizona is another one of those states where, you know, the fundamentals are a bit better for Republicans. Um, But Mark Kelly has a lot of money and Blake Masters does not. And, you know, in the last few weeks, there's been, you know, a lot of reports about who is spending money on his behalf and who is not spending money on his behalf. Um, So that was really, you know, why I think we kind of included him in 
sort of a different grouping than those top three who are, you know, really in these vulnerable, tough positions. And he seems to be, you know, in a little bit of a better position. His ranking on the list is still the same at number four, but he does seem to be in a little bit of a better of a position right now than he did, you know, maybe a few months ago when it wasn't clear if, you know, Blake Masters was going to continue to receive a lot of outside support. And uh, let, let's also talk a little bit about these additions. Again, I know that th- these, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch. Things would really have to go. The races would have to go in different directions than they're going right now <laughs> uh, for, for there to be an upset. But one of the interesting additions on this list, too, and I, I realize that this could be a real stretch. Uh, it would have to go. Uh, a lot of things would have to go Evan McMullen's way to beat Mike Lee. But you did identify Mike Lee. Uh, from Utah as potentially vulnerable as an as an incumbent. What's going on in Utah, uh, a ruby red state, to get Mike Lee, a Republican, uh, on the most vulnerable list? Well, Mike Lee had a primary challenge. We put him on our list in May because we saw kind of threats from both sides. He had he had two primary opponents. He easily won his primary, but it's important to look at the margin. You know, the, his opponents combined got over 35% of the vote. And Evan McMullen is a is a former Republican, a never Trumper type. He ran he he launched this really long shot presidential campaign in 2016 uh, as a as an opposition candidate to Trump. And so he kind of has this this brand um, and the Democrats did not put up a challenge. McMullen is running as an independent, but Democrats did not field a candidate. So if you're a Democrat in Utah and you want to take out Mike Lee, then you vote for Evan McMullen. And he, he really what he needs is to have uh, if. if he needs to have about 30 to 40% of Republicans back him as McMullen does. And, and we believe there is that potential there given the vote in the primary where you saw about 35 to 40% of Republicans back someone other than Lee in the primary. Um, so McMullen does have a, an uphill battle, of course. This is a very Republican state, um, you know, and it's not one where you see a ton of outside money being spent because, again, it's not really a Democrat running. McMullen has said he would not caucus with either party. So that sort of begs the question, you know, what kind of clout would he have in the Senate if elected? But it's it's an interesting race to watch. It's one that uh, certainly, you know, brings in a lot of this uh you know, noise about Donald Trump and, and, you know, where is the Republican Party going and all that? I, I'm just having visions of Evan McMullen winning this race. And then on Tuesday for the, for the policy lunches, he just goes down to the Senate takeout and gets a sad taco salad. <laughs> uh, Herb, let's, let's talk about primaries like i mean again the the primaries wrapped up uh last week but you you put together uh you and your team put together just sort of a list of of how many incumbents lost in primaries over the last few cycles and what we're we're seeing more incumbents lose uh compared to the the most recent election cycles but you noticed a few patterns and interesting things let's talk about where where we're landing there with with these uh you know with these primaries and and members losing in primaries yeah so i mean technically we still have the primaries in louisiana to happen in november but we don't consider them in louisiana that's a general election come on (laughs) uh 
but yes, yeah, so so we had fourteen incumbents lose, eight Republicans and six Democrats in the last three cycles combined. So twenty fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, we had eight, eleven people uh, lose. But the, the the wild card is, of course, that there were uh, there was redistricting. So uh, you got to go back to two thousand twelve. There were thirteen. So fourteen this this year. 13 in 2012. Now, if you go back to 1992, I don't know what they were smoking then, but there were 19 uh, incumbents who lost primaries. Um, so this year is kind of a normal redistricting cycle. You know, as Kate mentioned, sometimes members just quit so they don't run and lose. Right. Um, we did have uh, six member on member races. So six incumbents lost because of that. Um, and Four of those were Democrats, two were Republicans. We had two Republicans who lost to two uh, challengers, non-incumbent challengers, who had, let's say, ethical problems. That's Madison Cawthorn in North Carolina and Stephen Palazzo in Mississippi. Um, those seats are not expected to be in play. Uh, but, you know, you also had four Republicans who were uh, people who supported impeachment, of Donald Trump after the insurrection, who were defeated in primaries. And some of those seats are are in play. I'm thinking like Peter Meyer, his seat in Michigan was going to be a tough hold anyway for the Democrat, for the Republicans. Um, it might be even tougher without him as the candidate because he was beaten by a more Trumpy uh, nominee. Um, and then on the Democratic side, you know, you had two incumbents, Kurt Schrader and Mondaire Jones, who lost their primary, Schrader was defeated by a more liberal challenger. Uh, Jones, who is from, you know, if you know New York, Westchester County, uh, his district got taken over by Sean Patrick Maloney, who is the chairman of the DCCC. Um, so Jones decides to run in this lower Manhattan open district, but he's one of multiple liberals running. And I think it was also Brooklyn, Brooklyn and Manhattan. In lower multiple multiple liberals running, and you know the more moderate uh, lawyer who worked on one of the impeachments, who's on MSNBC a lot, won the nomination. So in one case, you basically had the the moderate Democrat in Oregon lose to the liberal challenger. In another case, you had the liberal Democrat in New York City lose to a more moderate challenger. Not that Dan Goldman is, you know going to join the Freedom Caucus anytime soon. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say the, the, the fact that you described the more mod, the most moderate person in the race uh, as a frequent MSNBC contributor and, and uh, impeachment. Well, you know, they, uh, they have those lawyer. banks of lawyers who come on and feed the yes. Trump is going to prison mantra that, right. you know, has been their programming shtick for two years, right? Right. Yeah. Four years, six years. I don't know. I, I mean, this it feels like this happens every 10 years, you know, in, in New York also is that uh, New York loses a seat uh, or two sometimes uh, in redistricting. And then they scramble to chop up, uh, you know, parts of upstate and parts of Manhattan and things get all uh, weird. And, and somebody ends up on the, you know, on, on the outside looking in. And in this case, it's Mondaire Jones and then also Carolyn Maloney, uh, a little higher up, who lost to Jerry Nadler. Uh, in, yeah, in her I primary. mean, the thing to remember about New York, and I would say this about overall, is that Democrats largely didn't do better in redistricting, that that some of the states where they might have had a chance to do better, 
there were either independent commissions because Democrats decided that was the fair way to do it. That So you have competitive seats in Oregon and Colorado uh, where Democrats might have been able to draw the lines to be more advantageous. In New York, they did do that, and then the courts overturned them because they didn't follow their own constitutional amendment. Um, but now everybody can just blame it on Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, because he's gone, right? One of those Cuomo's. Um, whereas in <laughs> Florida and Texas, and you know, they they didn't have that problem in some of these Republican states. And in fact, some of the states courts have said the map you drew is illegal, and the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, but we're gonna not going to look at it in this election." Right. Uh, we'll, so we'll, we'll mess everything up in the next election. <laughs> We'll, we'll throw it into a little bit of chaos. But hey, that's good for us because we get more vulnerable, most vulnerable lists out of it. <laughs> well, or they could just decide that courts can't overturn maps, which is one of the cases that it's got. The court has this wall. Well, so we're, before we wrap things up, I'm just curious. I mean, we, you know, again, we're in the home stretch. Uh, we'll, 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 you know, keep looking at the list, keep uh, looking at these folks in particular. Uh, what are you all watching for uh, in, in the run-up with your your most vulnerables? They're like they're like children that you get to like you know keep, keep an eye on on the playground. <laughs> well, we're looking at polls. I mean, we're, all the public polls that are that have been released. Um, we're looking at any scandal or you know October surprises or September surprises or November surprises. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I think some of the states that are harder to keep tabs on uh, are the ones that have unusual or new uh, voting ways of voting, like Alaska with the ranked choice voting. Um, we have both the uh, the incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski and the newly elected now incumbent House member Mary Peltola. They're both on the list and we're going to be assessing those campaigns very closely over the coming weeks. Well, thank you for running through it. I know we had uh, um, a lot to cover and I would just encourage people, we didn't go through every single uh, most vulnerable incumbent, but that's why we have the internet because uh, everybody can go on rollcall.com, click on the campaign tabs and you will see, you'll be able to find very easily the most vulnerable list uh, put together by uh, my esteemed colleagues here on the politics team. Herb, Kate, Mel, thank you so much uh, for, for walking us through it. And uh, for, for those of you out there listening, please talk about this podcast. Share it with your friends, rate us uh, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and go to rollcall.com and subscribe, not just to the political theater newsletter, but to the At The Races newsletter, which Herb, Kate, and Mel all put together every week and is awesome. Thanks again for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.